This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah on the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina Young, and today we're talking about the long history of climate transitions in the Southwest and how people who have lived in this region for tens of thousands of years have interacted with climate change through time. We explore the adaptation techniques that humans have used in the past and how we can use them to learn about our future. I'm Kyle Basinski. I am the Director of Climate Extension for the Montana Climate Office and research faculty in the Department of Society and Conservation at the University of Montana. We're in the W.A. Frankie College of Forestry and Conservation. I've been here in Missoula for the last five years and working at the university for the last four, but I only started this position as the Director of Climate Extension at the beginning of 2021. And prior to that, I was the Director of the Research Institute at the Crow Canyon Archaeological Center down in Cortez, Colorado. I'm an archaeologist. I was went to school at Washington State University and have done archaeology in the Four Corners region, region for over a decade, mainly up on Mesa Verde National Park and in the surrounding area. My specialty is paleoclimate reconstruction and specifically looking at how past farmers responded to climate change and negotiated the social implications of climate change in their societies. I've gotten to look closely at that on the Colorado Plateau in the Four Corners region and up on the Tibetan Plateau and specifically the Eastern Tibetan Plateau in what is today China. Such such interesting topics that I'm excited to delve into. Um, before we get into it, I'm curious what kind of sparked this interest? What led you to want to do this kind of work? My sophomore year, I just happened to take a course in environmental archaeology. And as part of that, I mean, we learned a lot of different techniques. I was able to dive into a project using tree ring data to reconstruct temperature in the southeast. I also think I was attracted to it because of our contemporary challenges that we have today. So many of the challenges that we see with climate change have to do with our food systems, with making sure that that globally there's enough food to feed people. And I was really attracted to understanding how past societies dealt with some of these challenges, what their solutions were, and thinking about how that could influence uh, our decision-making today, whether we have any tools from the past that we could deploy today. People today are, are familiar with the idea that weather affects agriculture, crops and growth. But I'm wondering, you're talking about paleoclimate and human occupation over really long periods of time. What are we talking about when we're talking about paleoclimate and agriculture and its effects on people? What kind of timescales and situations are we looking at? Maybe focusing especially here in the in the Southwest. Does that question make sense? Oh, it totally makes sense. And the Southwest is actually a perfect place to focus because the timescales that we're talking about are pretty analogous to the ones that we have today. Our ability to resolve climate in the Southwest is great. <laughs> we, um, we can do annual or even seasonal reconstructions of weather. I mean, we're not even talking climate here. We're talking weather, right? We can say 
people in Moab were experiencing a really extreme drought in this particular year and even in a particular season within that year using the tree ring record. There are very few places around the world where we can get to that level of resolution without having documentary evidence. In the Southwest, we have the privilege of being able to do that for at least the last 1200 years and really more like the last 2000 years, as long as people have been doing corn agriculture in the Four Corners region, we can get to annually resolve weather. So that presents us with a lot of opportunities because when we're talking about change, we can talk about how individual events might have impacted people, how a drought or flooding events could have impacted agriculture in a particular setting. But we can also look at at longer term changes. Did people see an increase in aridity over a period of time? Were there transitions where people were stable in maybe one type of climate regime, right? Where, oh yeah, they're seeing some variability every year, but maybe they're, they're pretty consistently wet. And then all of a sudden that climate system shifts into something that looks very different and they're getting a dry period over a long period of time. We're able to look at how, how people respond to those transitions between climatic regimes, which seem to be really important. It's those, those points where you go from one normal to a new normal that really impacts people. And that's a good analog for what we're seeing today. The new normal is still in flux. We're, we're undergoing the shift right now, but we are definitely seeing where people have been used to a certain way of doing agriculture, a certain climate, certain variants around a mean in their weather. And they're shifting in many parts of our country and in many parts of the world, they're shifting to a new normal. And so, um, so we actually get a really good analog to that experience when we look at the Four Corners region. So interesting. And so we have this incredible record because of tree rings in this region. I mean, to tell what the weather is looking like and the climate is looking like, how then do you make inference about people's responses over such a long period of time? If we're talking 2,000 years in the past, what kind of tools are you using as an archaeologist to then be able to say something about how humans respond to those shifts we can so clearly see? That's a great question. You know, we see in the archaeological records some big patterns, right? And we can focus on the the famous ones, people migrating out of the Four Corners region as one example, the collapse, so to speak, of the Chacoan system as another in the mid-1100s, where we see big patterns of demographic shifts. We see patterns in material culture, so people are organizing their societies in different ways. They may be building large buildings or not building large buildings. They may be living in large villages or separate on the landscape and small farming hamlets. They may be doing pottery in certain ways or showing evidence of long distance trade where they're getting raw materials from one area and using them in another. They may be having um, events such as large feasts that we can see in, in you know, the, the type of dishes that we find at archaeological sites. So we can see those transitions and we, we get those broad patterns. But we also have the privilege in the Southwest of being able to work closely with 
descendant communities, right? Whose ancestors went through, experienced a lot of these changes. When we're talking about a place like the Hopi Mesas, we're talking about 1300 years of persistent occupation of those mesas where people have been growing corn for 1300 years. They've gone through many of these big climatic shifts that we're able to document in the dendroclimatological record. And they tell us about some of the changes that they've seen. They may talk about how different villages were impacted by, um, by droughts in the past. They may talk about how climate events stimulated different aspects of their culture. And that tells us something about how they adapted, how they changed during the past. One of the things that routinely comes up in conversations with Hopi colleagues is the importance of migration, knowing when it's time to move, and also the importance of integration of people who are coming to the Hopi Mesas, bringing their corn with them, what stimulated those movements to the Hopi Mesas, and then what prompted the welcoming of people from across the Four Corners region to the Hopi Mesas has a lot to do with climate and with how people's corn was was well adapted to different environments. And the strategy, I would say, of the Hopi people of welcoming that variation into their society as a means of of conservation of both their culture and um, and of their corn. So we see we see those stories and we're able to see them in the archaeological record through excavation and through the research that's been done over the last century. And we're also really able to see them through our conversations with the descendants of those people who we study. I'd love I'd love to hear a little bit more. You you touched on some of these strategies, but I'd love to just hear a little bit more about people might think of corn and not always recognize the the vast varieties and adaptations that exists within different seeds and and just kind of breaking down some of these strategies even in a little bit even more detail to give people an example of what 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 people have to work with when they're trying to adapt to a changing climate absolutely and i will be the first to admit i had no appreciation for the variability in corn when i started being able to work in the southwest and working specifically with the Hopi Cultural Preservation Office. And I was astonished at the diversity of corn that's grown at Hopi today, at the variability in the uses of all of those different varieties. It's color, but it's also endosperm type. So it's the the type of corn, whether it's a flower corn or a popcorn, it's the importance of those different varieties in cuisine. So for making Peaky bread, or for doing popcorn, or for making a pozole. Each type of corn has its own use and its own importance in Hopi culture and in Pueblo culture today. Through some research that we've gotten to do, specifically that Crow Canyon has been doing, the Pueblo Farming Project, for over a decade with the Hopi Cultural Preservation Office. This is a, an experimental gardening project where researchers and Hopi people have been looking at that diversity of corn and its ability to grow and flourish in one of the Hopi homelands, the Central Mesa Verde region. The goal of that project 
was to illustrate some of that diversity and critically for Hopi to demonstrate that their corn still can grow in their ancestral homeland. One of the things that really jumped out at me doing this work has been that diversity of maize and how that diversity is maintained through seed saving in a very local place. So it's the importance of the development and maintenance of what we call land races. These are locally adapted varieties of corn in this case, but of any crop that is adapted to not only a local environment, so the the climate of that place adapted to the soils that are there, the nutrients that the corn is able to get, but also adapted to a specific form of agriculture, right, of, of cultivation. So it's adapted to the people and the people are adapted to it. What we see in Hopi corn farming and in Pueblo agriculture, I think writ large, is a system, a system of agriculture, a combination of the corn and the people that was able to very rapidly adjust to new climatological situations and to move. And they've got, we've got a history of migration of the people. That migration primed the corn and the people to be able to adapt to climate changes and keep growing corn throughout history, at least over the last 1300 years. Certainly, we've got evidence going back a couple of thousand years. And then, of course, corn has been under development for over 10,000 years in the New World. So we see this, this system in which people and corn learned how to adapt. And I think we see that continuing to today, especially in, in traditional Pueblo cultures and in other cultures that have, that have since adopted maize farming and really made it their own, like the Diné people. Now, what does that tell us about our current climate predicament in the future? One, you know, one of the keys to that, to the success of the Hopi people has been their, uh, their maintenance of diversity. And that is one thing that we certainly do not see in, in contemporary agriculture, especially maize agriculture around the world. We don't see that tradition of local seed saving, that tradition of the creation of land races, and yet the maintenance of diversity within seed stock. And that's a challenge that we have. Now we've got some other tools at our disposal. We've got modern genetic manipulation of corn. We, we've got the ability to, to rapidly, in a lab, adapt our corn to new environmental conditions. And yet, and yet I, I think that doesn't take us all the way there when it comes to, to local adaptation, to food sovereignty, to food security at that local level. And I think that, that we've got a lot to learn from traditional corn societies that that do corn cultures that do have those tools for maintaining that diversity and maintaining that adaptability in their food system. It's so easy to forget the legacy of human ingenuity in the modern century. And I just think these types of examples are everything, you know, like this is not, <laughs> responding to change is not a new thing for humans. And so it's hopeful, it's great, it's important things to think about. As someone who works in this space of climate, the climate space, you know, 
what what are you kind of anticipating or what what's the the latest knowledge on what our future might look like and then also where are you drawing hope from in thinking about these kind of unprecedented changes that are coming faster even than I think we'd realized they would come? We're definitely seeing aridification in the southwestern U.S. of a scale that humans have likely not experienced in the past. And yet, corn cultures in the southwestern U.S. have flourished in a really wide diversity of environments. Take, for example, the fact that we've got people growing corn in the southwestern U.S. up on the Hopi Mesas, you know, 6,000 to 8,000 feet in elevation, and people growing corn down in Tucson and in the Phoenix Basin, where it's much hotter, much different environmental context. Also different context in terms of infrastructure. I mean, in the Phoenix Basin especially, we get irrigated ag, but we have examples from communities across this environmental spectrum flourishing and developing very specific place-based agricultural techniques in order to do so. The hope that I have right now is that we're seeing a blossoming of knowledge exchange between communities that have developed food sovereignty, that have persisted through history. And through that exchange, I think we're seeing innovation in places that is going to help people persist into the future. We're seeing those changes. We're seeing the spiral mounds which is a method of growing food that's used by the Pima people down in Southern Arizona, being communicated to folks who are doing agriculture up in the Missouri River Basin. And we're seeing that experimentation happening on the ground. And I think in that way, we're seeing something that has occurred through communication, through migration, through exchange since time immemorial. We've had people exchanging this knowledge and adapting through collaboration. We see it in the archaeological record, and I think we're seeing a renaissance of that right now. And it actually does give me hope for ag in the Western U.S., for ag on Native nations, and for food sovereignty in the local food movement. It gives me quite a bit of hope. There are definitely challenges. I think one of them continues to be and will continue to be water availability for people in especially the southwestern U.S. We see aridification, we see desertification, um, and we see at the same time a larger draw on those water resources than we've ever seen before. You don't have to look past Lake Powell and, and Lake Mead and the real calamity that we're seeing in the Colorado River Basin with water availability. The solution, unfortunately, isn't going to be continuing to pull more water out of the basin. It's going to have to lean towards dryland ways of growing food, the way that Hopi people have grown food for millennia in order to be able to, to continue doing it. It's not all rosy. And yet in that local food sovereignty, the local ad, ag realm, I think we're seeing some really good movement 
among communities that are that are saying, you know, we need to be able to grow food in order to be able to to continue, and and we are going to look far afield from where we are in order to to be able to persist in doing um, local agriculture. That's that's what I see people doing. Well, Kyle, I can't thank you enough for for telling us all about the, you know these really important projects that you've been a part of and um, sharing your knowledge and sharing your hope with us. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This has been um, a real pleasure. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.